0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Shindig podcast brought to you by the Red River Archaeology Group. I'm your host Dr Tom Horn, and we've got a spectacular episode for you today. It's very simple, I don't need to sell it. It's with Dr Kat Jarman.
1: Parliamentarian troops storm the cathedral, uh, some of them on horseback riding down the nave and starting this huge big scheme of destruction stealing breaking you know smashing everything
0: famous archaeologist famous science communicator talking about our latest best-selling book the bone Chests*.
1: and up there are six chests six wooden chests they're quite small really remarkably small
0: so listen now it's genuinely fabulous Thanks for joining us today, Kat, and with your brilliant book, The, the Bone Chests, um, Unlocking the Secrets of the Anglo-Saxons. Um, it's about these amazing bone chests, and you can tell us a little bit about it, that are in Winchester Cathedral. Now, Winchester Cathedral, a lot of people will go to, as I did in the past, I'm going to admit, and I, you look at the Jane Austen grave, and then you maybe kind of say, oh, there's some interesting cats. Ha- you know, caskets up there and you had a wee look. And this is a few years ago now. And I think you described it yourself, a lot of tourists just not really looking at them. And this is going to change now with this amazing book. But can you tell us a little bit about the bone chest, Winchester Cathedral and and, and why you you wrote this book at this time?
1: Yeah, uh, no absolutely because you're right. And um, so many people go past them. The number of people, especially since writing this book, have told me, Oh, I've been to Winchester, and I never even seen them or didn't realise. Because these places, especially these massive cathedrals, are so filled with treasures really are you know wonderful things and you just you sort of get um a bit saturated (laughs) by it all and you you miss it but also these have that history behind them people just don't know but they are so if you do go to Winchester cathedral and you go in you go down the nave you go down to the choir and the presbytery which is just beyond there you have to look up so you have to see this this, uh, huge stone screens on the side and up there are six chest six wooden chests. they're quite small really remarkably small they've got inscriptions on them but again you might not be able to read them but they've got names and they got names of 11 people on them in total and those are some of the most illustrious kings and bishops and a queen from really spanning the 7th and up until the 12th century they're actually some of the people who who really orchestrated and witnessed the whole creation of, of England as a country and they're all stuffed into these little chests <laughs> and that's that's part of what's so remarkable but also the the chess history themselves which are i describe it a little bit as a sort of unround novel of some sort but a much better and a much sort of <laughs> real one because so much has happened to them over the years including this devastating civil war attack where parliamentarian troops storm the cathedral uh, some of them on horseback riding down the nave and starting this huge big scheme of destruction, stealing, breaking, you know, smashing everything, including clambering up and smashing some of these chests to the ground and taking the bones inside them out and using them to smash the stained glass windows. So really, I mean, once you once I started learning about this, I mean, I I also first time I I, I sort of heard about them, thought, mm, yeah, they're, they're, they seem nice, <laughs> but then you hear the whole story and you go, oh my goodness, you know, why, why? Um, and they are completely unique. We don't have anything else like them um, in in this country at all, where so many royals are, are sort of kept together. Certainly not from this early medieval period. The fact that they've been kept, that the fact that some of them survive from the seventh century onwards that in itself is really important um so yeah once i'd heard about them i was sort of thought oh you know it's one well as i just couldn't get away from and i had to keep going back to so so the book is really very much trying to tell that story of the chess but also you know why they're there what's happened to them but also of those people you know their stories and and why uh that why winchester is such a crucial part in understanding why England became England, and then, of course, for me, with my Viking uh, side, my Viking hat on, yeah. um, is the fact that the Scandinavian, the Vikings, are crucial to that, and some of them are even in there. So, yeah, there we go.
0: And
2: and, and that's it,
0: because you've got the chess, and we'll, we'll talk more about the contents and who may have been in them, and the amazing scientific research, and, and your brilliant science communication about you know how how we describe to. sort of general reader how all the amazing science with the dna research and the isotopic research happened. but what really interested me about this book and i I really loved it was because i was thinking it's going to be a book and it's going to be telling in your amazing psychoms uh way about the science behind we're discovering maybe who's in the cast caskets and you know the date range whether they actually are early medieval But the interesting thing i found as well in addition to that this was a sort of a way in because you're really telling as you said the history of england but also a part of the history of england that we don't necessarily think about is that the history of this amazing kingdom of of wessex so could you tell us a little bit about what wessex was and why it's so important to the history of 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 england and then and then and then britain and then really i suppose the 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 western europe
1: yeah I mean this is also something that that kind of surprised me you know not not so much when I was writing this because obviously I've been working on this this topic for quite a lot longer but when I first started learning about you know going back sort of 10 15 years this fact, this idea that Wessex was so crucial Wessex was one of the many early kingdoms that emerged after well, really after the fall of Rome and when when we've got this period where uh, everything changes really and then quite soon kingdoms start to emerge and people when I tell them about them they go oh yes the heptarchy these seven kingdoms but actually originally we start with with a lot more of them many 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 smaller kingdoms and eventually we they start to some of them the, the some of them started to, to uh, become much more significant much larger taking over the smaller ones and one of the ones that really emerges there is uh is Wessex so the the kingdom of the West Saxons in the southwest and over the years um it it grows quite a lot in size there's a lot of rivalry there's a lot of uh, conflict between the different kingdoms but uh certainly from the probably from the 6th uh, and certainly into the 7th century wessex has become one of these key territories and as it grows and takes on the other you know goes goes and coalesces with others um that's where it sort of starts to Become England later on. So really, the what becomes England starts out very much in uh, in Wessex and with the the Wessex kings. And Winchester was at the core of Wessex. Uh, mm-hmm. So really, from quite early on, it becomes what we what we would think of as a capital. Um, of course, in the seventh century, there's no no such so just a concept as as a capital. But that's really the seat of political power, and it becomes the seat of, of religious power. Those two, of course, are very closely linked, as as I, I discuss in various points uh, during this book as well. So, when becomes the key, and I think for most people, it becomes best known in the 9th century when uh, Alfred the Great takes on, and he he really starts to work on Winchester as a town. And uh, and so the form, in fact, if you go to Winchester today, a lot of what you see, the sort of street patterns and even things like street names, go back to Alfred's uh, Winchester, 9th century Winchester. And it's also the churches and the cathedrals. They have the most incredible story. The, the cathedral that you see today is the, is the 11th century Norman um sorry, yes, the 11th-century Norman Cathedral. But that has two precursors, one called Newminster and one called Oldminster. And Oldminster goes way back to the beginning in the 7th century. So... That's the sort of it in a nutshell, really. I think with Wessex, and because it's got these really crucial kings, um, some of them have got that I talk about in the book have got connections and alliances overseas, especially to Francia, um, and you know that's that gives it also a, very much a continental um, link and continental connection. Then we later on we go into the more Scandinavian phase. So I'm sure we get onto people like Knut uh, the Great later on, who's also linked. So then we have the Scandinavian connection between Wessex and Winchester as well. So, so yeah, it's sort of it's kind of got everything in <laughs> Wessex in a way.
0: And that and that, I think that's the the strength of it because it's a uh, you know as we'd say in archaeology and academia it's multidisciplinary. It's 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 got a little bit of everything. So. Uh, and you explain it so well. And this this is the, the thing that I want to ask you about now. What is your process for writing? Because you know, people probably know you're you know a, a very skilled archaeologist. You've you've run digs across Europe. Your you know, Vikings are your our main area of expertise. But you're 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 a hard scientist. You you're looking at ancient DNA. You're looking at isotopic analysis. When you're writing uh, a book for a more general audience like this, what is your process in, in sort of interpreting this very sort of, you know, very difficult and complicated hard science that I do not understand most of the time? And I'm thankful for books like yours to, to explain it to me. You know, you know, when you're writing this book, what are you aiming to do? How how do you approach getting these really difficult concepts into a style and a narrative that's fun and engaging because one of your things that you do is you 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 almost write in a poetic style as well as a hard science style you meld you meld these two processes together and writing is, is, is art you know writing as an art and writing as a science so could you give everyone a little bit of an insight into how you write how your process um goes
1: yeah definitely And um, thank you for the, the kind words there um i i would say I really, really enjoy writing. I've always loved writing, so I, I, I think from a tiny, I was making little books uh, for myself when I was about five. <laughs> so this is something I've been doing forever. <laughs> so it's like the grown-up version of my little uh, pretend books. But I think ultimately a base of it is just thinking of it all as a story that you have to tell, and as a narrative. It's a story with a beginning and an end, and that on a, on a bigger scale so the whole book in itself has to be a story. it has to tell something um, but also all the little bits, all the little chapters, every little thing, you know, every little grave or every little concept that in itself has to be a story as well and I like to think of it like that and I th- I find that very helpful even when I do you know public engagement or speaking or anything like that everything has to have a story it has to have a beginning and a middle and an end and you have to take the reader or the listener with you and uh, somebody said to me that when you do especially presentations and things you have to sort of assume that the person has very little time very short attention span and actually doesn't really care about what you're talking about <laughs> so your, your job is to try and convince them um, And I think thinking that is a really good sort of starting point. And, but you know, you have to also respect for your listeners. You have to think, well, this is an intelligent person, but you don't know who they are. You don't know what their background is. So these things are always kind of at the back of my mind that I, I don't want to assume that people know things, but I want to keep them engaged. I want to keep them, you know, excited. And I read a lot of, Uh, fiction as well. I read a lot of crime fiction, a lot of sort of interesting, and and that I think inspires me to sort of try and bring some of that excitement, you know, because I want people to be excited about what they read, they want them to want to read the rest of it. So so I think at the back, that's always it, Um, that, that sort of underlies it. And I think also there's a lot of parallels to things like, uh, I mean, you you yourself have got a lot of experience working in TV, and you know that that's all about storytelling as well, and you've got, you know, very little time to get a concept across. So I I think I've taken a lot from my, my broadcasting experience into my writing as well, and to sort of this idea of, you know, you have to tell a big story but you've got to sort of do it properly um so that's those are sort of background things in terms of a very practical sense i i'm a, a big fan of outlines and i always sort of start with lots of outlines i start sort of charting things out with post its and and mind maps and arrows and and all of that to sort of try and get that biggest story the whole time um but then within that i find these little cases i do my research i go to a library and i find something really exciting or there's a new article on new scientific bit of evidence or whatever um and then i sort of try and go all right well where does that fit in and Quite often I'll write something, and I write a description of a grave, and it's just a sort of floating file. I have no idea where it goes until much later. But I sort of, I get on it, I write it, and I describe it, and then I put it back in. So, so I think in in many ways my my process is quite messy, and I think if you, which is also why I can't, I can never send anything to my editor sort of draft halfway through because. She, you know, she'd just go, What, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> and probably panic and think this is never gonna but it will it will fit together. I know it's there, I know where it's going, but it's it's a complete mess. And then you know last minute I put it together, I connect the dots, um, and I do it that way. And that that really works for me because I think, you know, sometimes you just don't you don't quite know. I'm not the sort of person who begin at the beginning and then just write through, you know, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three doesn't work. And uh Partially because, you know, it's things keep coming up all the time. And this book took me about three years to write. And, and in that time, there were so many new uh, cases, especially with science. It moves so quickly. You have to keep on updating it.
0: And that's, that's the thing. One of the things I loved about this book was that there are references in it for papers that were out. You know like a year ago in 2022 this book was obviously just published this year and the way that then you, you've you as you and the interesting way you're talking about your process you'll you'll find uh, a paper you read that and then say how does this equate to some of the stories that i'm trying to tell and one of the best examples of this i thought was when you were talking about origin myths and migration and origins of the you know quote quote unquote the anglo-saxon and english people or whatever term that people are comfortable using so maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you i mean imagine maybe you think well i'm going to have to discuss gildas you can tell us who gildas is and, and bidar the these these very important historians of the early medieval period in, in, in britain but then you have these amazing new papers that yeah you've just read these big uh ancient DNA studies or these studies on isotopic analysis. So maybe as a vignette, you could tell us how, looking at the the, the origins of the, the, the early English or the Anglo-Saxons, what Gildas and Bede are telling us as, is, is, um, you know, in, well, uh, early medieval sources of which we have very little, but then you're managing to bring that together as a story and bringing in these amazing new scientific papers that were just being released as you are writing the book.
1: Yeah, so some of that can be really, really challenging. And I I did find actually for me, I'm, as you said at the start, I'm I'm very much an archaeologist and trained in the science, and I'm not a historian at all. I've not had any training as a historian. And I mean, I imagine your listeners will, will be quite familiar with the difference between that, but you know, as in, i don't i haven't had training in really looking at the written sources i don't know i can't read old english i can't read latin i can't do any of that and so and i don't have a you know really good grasp of those sources in a way so so for this book that was probably the steepest learning curve was really going into the the written sources and and there's a lot more of it here than i was hoping for. <laughs> i was hoping i could get away with doing more of the science and archaeology and. my well in some of these periods there's, there's just nothing there and so i had to dig much deeper into yeah. the written sources so so things like you know Gildas and uh, and b that was very much outside my comfort zone really but in some ways that's also quite good because if i could come at it um with a sort of slightly fresh eyes and go yes i sort of vaguely know about these sort of early writers dating uh, to that early medieval period and who write about these uh, so-called Saxon migrations and tell us quite clearly what happened, who came, um, what battles they fought, you know, against whom and where they settled and how that really originated in the whole creation of England or the Anglo-Saxons and then in England. So so to be able to sort of go in um, slightly sort of, New. I'm not entirely. Obviously, I've known about them for quite a long time. But uh, you know, going and sort of look at that again was quite interesting. And because one of the things I was really trying to do with this book was was very much challenge those stories that we've been told, those narratives that are still being taught, you know, in schools. And so are they actually real? So I could go in and go, okay, well, so Gildas and how does Bede build on Gildas? And how do other people Anglo Saxon Chronicle build on Bede? And then you know, who else has used the Anglo Saxon Chronicle later? What's being taught in schools? All those narratives and sort of look at those first. So I sort of with that particular example and, and what you're talking about here some of the um isotope work that came out just very, very recently looking at um I sorry I said DNA ancient DNA studies looking at evidence for for migrations. It was quite nice because I could start with a summary and just go back around going, okay, here's the traditional narrative and then let's go and have a look <laughs> and um and sort of see well what does it say? What do those authors conclude? And in this particular case, without wanting to do too much for spoiler for anybody wanting to read the book, <laughs> um, the, the interesting thing, I think, was that it, the DNA does show quite a lot of uh, quite diverse uh, migration into England, and but mixing with with sort of local populations. And the fact that this is happening at all levels of society as well, some of those written sources suggest this is a kind of elite coming in, elite takeover. But actually, we're seeing you know what seems like a huge level of migration coming across and some of those graves are are not, you know, marked out as anything special. They're not necessarily leaders or rulers or anything like that. Just, you know, seem to be everyday people. So that is something that the written sources then can't tell us about. So that again is is really really interesting. Plus, people who come from all sorts of places. I mean, parts of Africa that we did we weren't, you know, no idea that that was happening. So that's that's really exciting. I think, um, in in sort of cases like that
0: and that that's again another strength of 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 your books including the the fabulous river kings and you know if if you like the bone chest definitely um get river kings afterwards it's 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 cats of steam sort of trademark style of bringing in the latest scientific research and then talking about these wider narratives and changing the way we look at the historical narratives and and that's the thing with, with river kings you were you were again fascinated with long distance and sort of cross cultural links, and this is now we're maybe going to talk a bit more about the the archaeology, because you know having focused on uh, our carnelian bead, you can talk a little bit maybe about river kings here, um that possibly was originating is in in India and certainly coming through se- central Asia, the Caspian Sea sort of region. You're talking about this 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 particular um semi precious stone that ends up in in the Repton great army camp, um. You know, so what, you know, as an archaeologist, what artifacts that you were discovering in the process of the book? I mean, you would known about them, but you were finding that were really helping to tell the story about these this early period. So we're talking about the, the early migration period and the foundation of kingdoms like Wessex, because you talk about amazing, you know, the particular the type of 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 cusp clash that were maybe coming over from Western Norway. Or you're alluding to the sort of Frankish artefacts in Kent, you know, one of these unknown sort of migrations that we talk about. What sort of class of artefacts? You know, obviously, our, 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 our great friend Jane Kershaw has looked at this sort of thing as well, you know, what people are bringing in with them and what that is saying about where they're coming from and how they're settling. Are they marrying into to local families? Um. So, maybe just, you know, what sort of class of artefact or type of artefact? I'm um, really excited you th- and helped you tell this this wider narrative.
1: yeah, that's a good question. And I think for women King as I said the the carnelian bead was so obvious. It was such a good starting point. and and actually it was it, I found that one much easier to think of in terms of the artifacts because I was trying to tell very much that story of from the you know, ground level quite literally speaking and so you had things like you know viking ship nails that talk about ships and and all of that and and also going very much into places like um like in Eastern Europe, where the written sources coming much later, and we don't have them for, for that sort of early period that, that we were talking about. So, So there, it was quite straightforward, actually, to look at those artifacts, because they were telling us so much. I have to say that in this one, that was much harder. There wasn't anything obvious. So that question doesn't really have a very good answer in a way, because there isn't to me, when I was writing, there wasn't anything that sort of carried it through apart from the bones. So whether we can call about the bones artifacts, I don't know, but, but you know, sort of as objects that yeah. have been, um, you know, have been curated. I think that was what was really interesting to me, because here we're talking a lot about bones that have had a, a sort of life not necessarily just as the sort of reminder of the person you know in a sort of uh close family sense that you know you go and tend to the grave because you remember that person but used as political tools used as you know religious or political objects and being manipulated and curated so it's very much those bones i think that that did it the most but but little objects like, you know, these these um clasps that you talk about, uh, which I sort of knew about, but not really until I started researching them. And they they date to sort of fifth century, I, I believe, sort of late fifth century. And uh we're talking East Anglia, so we're talking that East and sort of around Norfolk and all parts of the country like that. And the fact that you have these connections across the sea, and so this is sort of almost really a bit before the period I'm talking about, but I was so interested in those connections also going further up to places like Bambara and um that sort of northeastern coast but again a bit later on any connections that we've got with Norway especially something again uh, from my my work in Norway um also knowing about those sort of earlier connections before the viking age but they sort of they're not really considered um very often i think they're sort of neglected a little bit these connections with scandinavia earlier on and but I think we need to bring that back in because they're so going well. This isn't something new. This isn't this sort of North Sea connection isn't a new thing. And I did try to get that across a little bit in in River Kings as well. But of course, that was very much Viking Age focus. But if we go a little bit further back, we have to go well we're actually people are coming in and out for a really long time so so i guess those definitely uh, made a difference but apart from that it was very much the way that these bones were used as objects and the saints remains as well saints shrines how they were really manipulated um by these sort of rulers uh especially and how they were giving all that that significance that that to me was something i kept getting back to
0: and and that's what we would sort of again call in academia this sort of object biography. Maybe it's a good time now just to have a, a brief note about you know you know the the object biography of the of the cast because obviously you talk about that great scene and you describe it so memorably about the the uh, the, the the parliamentary and soldiers coming in during the, the 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 civil war. Can you just tell us about you know how these chests get to be in the form that they are? now and um, because it's not the first chest they've even been in and obviously they've been jumbled about they've been used literally as you were saying as missiles to to smash through uh, uh the stained glass windows i mean just an, an incredible scene and you describe it so beautifully maybe now just a point in the, the podcast is to give the reader an idea of you know they've been in different casks, they've been moved around how many bones maybe there are just a little bit of background on that
1: Yeah. So this is, you know, actually also one of my my favorites really was researching the actual story of the chests themselves, not just just the bones inside. Um, So the ones you see now, if you go in there, date from the 16th century, or at least four of them do. So there's six chests now. Um, Four of them are the original ones that were there when the parliamentarians attacked. Two are replacements, because at that time in the 17th century, there were actually 10 of them originally. So more of them were lost and then two were replaced so the ones you're looking at some some go back to the 16th century um and before that they go back much further as well so there are earlier medieval examples and in fact at the moment there's an exhibition on in the cathedral called kings and scribes where they have two of the medieval chests that were forerunners to these ones also on display but they go back even further so the first time we know that somebody put bones in chests is in the 12th century so that's uh somebody called henry of Blois, who was the bishop of uh, winchester he was the uh he was also the son i believe no so grandson of william the conqueror and uh he was also related to the to the king king stephen so he was actually quite an important person and he was doing this not just because you know this was a religious belief but also because this was part of his own family ancestry uh, but he moved them into to the then winchester cathedral which was uh, the cathedral was consecrated in 1092 so it was quite recent really and uh, so before that, we have to also understand a little bit about these churches. I, I mentioned briefly that we have uh, forerunners to the, the cathedral. So there are actually two forerunners, so Old Minster and New Minster. So these were Minster churches, which means that they were churches that were the centre of a monastic community. The first one starts in the 7th century, around 650, <clears throat> and that's all that later becomes known as Old Minster. And that was um, a thriving community, a nice big church, very popular. Um, and then Edward the Elder, who was the son of Alfred the Great, decided to uh, build a new church, a new establish a new minster community. In uh, I think right at the beginning of the 10th century, and um, so he built what then becomes known as New Minster. But they keep Oldminster there as well, right next door. So you have two churches and they start competing, essentially, <laughs> which one is the biggest and which one is the best. And so you can apparently you could touch them both. You could walk between them and then touch the walls of both. So they're they it's bizarre, side by side. And um, the part of the reason why he does this is because he wants to... Essentially, show his new sort of political regime and his new uh, new territory, which was very much turning into England as opposed to just Wessex. And as a part of that, he also takes bones. So he takes his father's bones, he takes Alfred the Great's bones, and moves them into Newminster. So we have this weird situation for quite a long time up until the Normans arrive, where you've got some burials in Newminster and some in Oldminster of all these kings that eventually end up in the chests. Then finally, uh, the Normans decide, you know, this, this really did. So they're building their new cathedral and they're tearing down Newminster. Oldminster stays for a long time with lots of barrels in it. And then eventually, Henry of Blois decides, no, no, this won't do. We can't have all these, these bones in random locations. I've got to pick them up. I've got to do something. So he takes them, puts them into lead sarcophagi. and um, But apparently uh, there's a later record to say that it was a little bit confusing. What was what? There was lots of tombs around. He Didn't quite know who was who. Uh, some were kings, some were bishops. Because he didn't know, he put them all in together uh, a bit jumbled up. So... <laughs> So they start being jumbled up already, you know, from from the word go. Um, but there are names attached to them. So some of them had names painted on and there are various lists. So over time, these have then been moved. Obviously, presumably the lead sarcophagi started to deteriorate and new wooden ch- um, chests were made. And that brings us forward up until the ones that we've got there today.
0: And... I think, again, this, I mean, that was, that was, that was brilliant. I, you know, again, this, you know, buy this book because Kat explains things beautifully throughout, as she just done there. And, you know, you you said you're interested in, I think, you know, detective and crime novels as well, and very much... Some of them very much read like a detective novel. You're kind of it's, it's it's gripping, and you you have a fascination with these early medieval graves. And it's you're stru- like trying to find early medieval battlefields. It's like you know you the the you know they must be there, but there's so many legends and myths that have grown up um, amongst them. And of the graves and of the burials and of the the characters that you describe in the book, you know Athelstan, Alfred, Saint Ainsworth. I can't describe, any old anglo-saxon names but there are various sort of saints (laughs) that have names that i can't pronounce chale wolf rollo and normandy of these graves and the detective stories and beginning you know trying to piece together who might be in a particular grave or who might be in a particular chest which story or which person individual or burials of interest you most or you found when you're writing this book
1: Oh, there's so many of them. So it's really difficult to pick pick a single one. And I do like, I mean, I, I do really get quite sort of absorbed in thinking about all these these battles and all that, the remains from the battle sites and the fact that we just don't have them. So that's a really interesting one. Alfred, of course, you can't, you can't get away from Alfred and the story. The, the things that people have done, the trying to find him and trying to claim they found him in in sort of quite recent periods are just incredible i write about all of this uh through the work of other people uh that i I describe in in the book as well i mean it's that's that's quite a sensational one especially someone like alfred who's got this reputation as being you know our most important king of the, of this period and then we have no idea what happened to him really and where he's gone so that's that is also quite quite interesting you know why 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 has that happened um so i do really like uh those ones. some of these uh these ones that become saints later on were, were really really interesting some of them that we don't know and uh the one one of the ones i, I came across and again I'm, I'm the same as you with all these early names so I also don't yeah.
0: I never
1: quite know how to pronounce them so I do it my way but there's one early one of the earliest medieval Wessex uh, queens actually called um, Saxbur who we don't know anything about, but in all the regnal lists of, um, of Wessex, there's, there's there's one woman listed there in this early period, and she seems to have ruled for a year. Uh, but I'd never heard of her, but she she ruled the whole kingdom for a year in a list of many others, and um, never heard of her. We don't know what happened to her. We don't know what, where she was buried, but there's just a little statement going, you know, all these male, 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 male female, male, 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 male. But you know, she <laughs> she's sort of vanished. So you sort of think, well... Oh, why, how? You know, there's no there's no really kind of um description of it or but she clearly held the throne for a year um on her own and her name is recorded there. So someone like that, I just you get so fascinated. But then it's frustrating because you can't find the evidence, but who knows, it might turn up one day.
0: Well that, this is I mean, I'm glad that you 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 mentioned the 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 woman's history and the Royal women's history because someone who studied um, Gregory of Tour um, as an undergraduate um, and the amazing you know Frank and Merovingian queens. Who are the fiercest people you'll ever meet on Earth. Absolutely incredible people. Um, and your interest in the the, the 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 female the the history is is again another strength of of your writing. And obviously with with Emma being mentioned and on the on the bone chest as well, m- maybe you can tell us a wee bit about Emma. And uh, yeah, you, you've already introduced us into the the you know the fact that it's difficult to find. Uh, women's uh, uh historical figures particularly in, in royal families are often referred to as the queen or they're poisoning someone they've got the, you know tim clarkson was at the top last night and that's often how you hear about them they've done something horrible um and the same with gregory of tours you cast them very much as these powerful but you know slightly sinister figures so maybe if you tell us a little bit about emma of normandy i think our, our listeners will be really 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 interested in that story
1: Yeah, I do absolutely love Emma. And she's someone who should be getting a lot more attention, I think, more widely. (laughs) Uh, she deserves it. So she was uh, the wife twice, the wife of the king of Wessex or king of England. Um, and so she starts being the wife of Ethelred the Unready, and she marries him, I believe, in 1002. She's essentially sent over. So she was a the daughter of the Norman duke. So she's of Norman blood, and uh, she's sent over to be uh, his king, partially to create this this alliance which is obviously one of the main reasons that we have these International marriages or you know uh it's not sadly for love it's usually for as uh, other connections and diplomatic connections so she's sent across and her Norman background is quite important because of course the Normans being essentially Scandinavians going back a few generations that is something that becomes uh, important later on so she starts as as his wife and they have some children and then later on after after Ethelred's death, she then becomes ki- uh, the k- wife of the next king, uh, which is Knut the Great. So she then becomes a Scandinavian uh, king's queen. And there, I think that that connection is quite important because it's likely that she grew up speaking Danish or some other Scandinavian language uh, in her childhood because that was spoken at the court that she grew up in. So she has this amazing connection Uh we think, to Scandinavia as well through her Norman roots that will help her in her marriage with Knut. And uh, she becomes especially important from that point on because she and Knut seem to have a really good partnership. So they essentially co-rule. And this, again, becomes something quite unusual uh, at the time because these queens are given very little uh, respect and attention over the time. If you go back to someone like Alfred the Great and uh, his wife Eelswith, when uh, when we have his autobiography, well, his biography by Asa. Asa goes through the whole thing and, and never mentions her by name at all. So if you have a queen, Alfred's queen, is not even mentioned by name, which is quite a contrast to to Emma, um, sort of 100 years or so later. So she, is, um, she's very often depicted. They're depicted side by side, and then, of course, after Knut's death, her role becomes more important because she is now uh, this, the mother of, of kings later on, and she's got all this offspring. She's got several sons. I'm not going to go into the whole family um, uh, family tree here and all that, sort of. Conflicts over who who becomes the next king because it's quite quite uh, intense. But she takes a very active part in this, and she sort of manipulates really her sons and uh, trying to make sure that they they grip onto England. So she becomes really important both as as the queen and as the queen mother um, as well. So she, also as the mother of the kings. So she she has this extraordinary long time period where she has a lot of power. She's clearly a very strong character. She's she's very well loved as well, actually, I think. And people seem to really like her and respect her. And um, and that is quite extraordinary. Then the final, final little thing I'm gonna say about her is because she, because of her Norman links, she also becomes important for William the Conqueror, because she is his ancestor and uh i i personally think that this is one of the main reasons why her remains get to stay in winchester in these chests and with several inscriptions into the medieval period because actually the normans coming in realized that here's a connection here's a sort of you know an ancestor queen who's directly related to this new dynasty they're not just you know complete um Raiders and invaders—they—they they have a claim essentially through that family history. So, so that's you know, Emma really encapsulates all of that and all these three different regimes: the sort of Anglo-Saxon or English regime, Scandinavian, and the Norman, um, which is pretty unique, I think.
0: And yeah, no, that—that's. I mean, again, it's speaking to what you were saying earlier about. You you find this person and then you can tell this wider story through them, I and particularly valuable if it's someone like Emma that maybe most people may be heard of. But the fact is, you know, she's commissioning histories, isn't she, as well? And she knows her place in history, and she knows she's going to be remembered. So it's amazing that everyone around her picked up on that message and like, okay, we've got to keep her bones. She's she's a link to the past and the future. She's a link between the sort of Anglo-Saxon period and the Norman period as well she's you know linked to Knut and linked to William and Rollo and I, I think I think that's you know I say that that's part of the fascination with, with with your book that you can use these biographies and you can bring in the Norman period as well and you know moving into the norman period um, as your book does I mean I loved one of the vignettes in the in the story that you you mentioned the, the new research that's discovered the you tapestry which we all know is an embroidery um but it fits or something there's something. it fits exactly into the nave behind the choir screen at bayou uh uh, uh cathedral now so you, you know can you tell us a little bit about you know maybe your your most interesting vignette you know little facts like that that can just enliven when you suddenly think oh the bayou travesty i know about that you know where where did it come from and you're using it to tell us the story about normandy and the the links into england so it's not just wessex it's it's normandy it's knut it's knut's norsey empire you know what sort of vignettes or little stories like that when you're looking at this wider history in normandy or say knut's and emma's sort of norsey empire kind of made you sort of excited about writing this this sort of book that's really accessible and interesting
1: yeah, so, I mean, there's so many little, little snippets like that, but I think one of the ones that that really stretched across a lot of these different periods uh, relates to Knut, actually, and Knut the Great, and, and also to Bones, I about earlier. and um, I have to say, I've become a big Knut fan in writing this. <laughs> actually, I think he's also absolutely undervalued as a king, and it's interesting, actually, when I've been going around now lately in the last few weeks doing book talks and, and events and talking to people, he... People sort of vaguely know about him, but they don't really know very much. And they, they, the sort of idea they have about King the Great is, is quite is quite basic. And they, sort of, they have this idea of this story about him holding back the waves, trying to sort of, which comes across as a, a story that seems really silly, that he was sat on the sea and said, you know, I'm going to try and stop the waves from coming in. And of course he fails. And people have the the wrong use of that. So they use it for anybody who tries to do something really stupid, to stop something inevitable, but actually, that was a was the story behind it is completely different. He he knew that was his limitation. He was trying to prove that a king couldn't stop anything like that. That was only God who could do that. So yeah. anyway, so that's part of that story. But uh, but what one of the things he did was actually using bones and using remains, saints' remains, saints' cults, taking them, moving them around, manipulating them. But he was going quite often to places that had a Scandinavian link. And I first i about this or really realised that connection when I, I was involved in some projects in Bury St Edmunds. And of course St Edmund is uh, someone who was killed by the great army, So going back to my, my you know, first bit of research, uh, in the 9th century. So he was the East Anglian king who was sort of brutally murdered uh, by the great army chopped off, and later the locals found his head, uh, put it back on, and his body was magically complete, and, and that was why he became Saint Edmund. Uh, now, this, of course, is in the ninth century. But then later on, Knut comes along uh, into the 11th century, and he supports cults of Saint Edmund, and uh, especially in bury St Edmund's and is part of creating the new abbey there and the new sort of shrine and very very much supports this uh the saint whose backstory is that he was killed by the Vikings you know and he was very noble in being a Christian and part of the the thing that St Edmund did was refuse to give up his Christianity and so here you've got this other Viking coming in who's taken over and he's saying well you know I'm actually really going to support this cult and he must have known that backstory. He must have. And I know we don't know the detail of how much he knew about that, but the fact that you got that, and you know, he's so much a Christian. In his, he is. He is- very religious, very good with the church, but he uses those remains physically. He takes other things. So going back to Repton in my first book, he actually, there's a, there's a story that he takes the bones of St. Whiston, who was the the key saint in Repton, who was buried in St. Whiston's church, the one that was attacked by the great army again. He also apparently came and took the bones of St. Wiston and moved them to Evesham. So again, he's he's going to some of these places that have Viking Scandinavian links and of course we don't know how much people knew about that how they thought about these earlier scandinavian raiders but i just love that so this idea that that dude comes in he's now a viking king in charge of england and he takes the bones of these other someone who the other vikings had killed and moves and manipulates them and you know actually creates a huge shrine to him and I think something to do with how that he as a character, you know, what he uses the past, uses the bone, uses the power in those bones, that just really stuck with me because it encompassed, you know, so many parts of of the story.
0: And and, and that said, I mean, we won't keep you for much longer, but I, I think what your closing of this book was, you know, really quite affecting, and I'll actually even quote from it here, um, what is so special about those bones? You're talking about the bones in the chest, but you're also talking about things like, you're talking about their Knut's manipulation of of saints' bones as well. And you say, what's so special about those bones is that when we do what we can to add flesh back onto them, they remind us of the human stories within that history. So I suppose, doctor Cap Kapp-Jarman, my final question to you is, what should we take with us from how you and previous generations of researchers have looked at the bone chests and just manipulation of, of, of history and archaeology and, and saints relics um, from, from you know, these amazing chests at Winchester Cathedral.
1: For me, I think it's that we should always remember that we probably never get to the sort of real truth of the history, but everything is a narrative. Everything, you know, the history is written in the present and is written for different reasons, for different motivations. We can get closer and closer, I think, by untangling it, by adding bits of science, by adding lots of different sources. But we have to always remember that whatever story we are thinking about and talking about comes from somewhere. It comes from somebody uh, who is thinking about it, writing about it with particular background with motivations with you know sometimes they are good <laughs> motivations uh, sometimes they are not but we have to understand that and we have to unpack it and not a sort of Automatically accept something like beads, so saying, "Well, yes, you know, bead told the truth. Hey, Here, this, this is the story." But we've got to go. Okay, you know, who was he? <laughs> why was he telling this story? And how does it stack up now? And how, you know, how has it gotten to us? And we'll always sort of keep on interrogating those things, and that itself is really exciting and really fun. But I think if we understand that, if we understand why we've got to where we are, and then try and use as many methods as much. Science, science is never going to be the answer. It's never going to give us a sil- silver bullet to tell us everything. But it's going to add a different layer that that is slightly, you know, different from those written records and yeah, always always try and interrogate the narratives keep coming back to them you know what i'm writing now in in 10 20 years i'm sure this book is going to be awfully out of date and might be completely disproven half the things i say but but that's fine that's exciting that's part of the process we have to just remember that you know we can do what we can to put things back onto them but we also have to sort of unwrap and see how we got there in the first place
0: well i think i think we should end it there because that's just a, a beautiful summary of what is a fantastic book and it's it's called the bone chess um unlocking the secrets of the anglo-saxons it's by dr kat german and it's published it's out now as an audiobook that you um narrate as well and you can buy it in all good bookshops and online as an ebook. and it's by uh, william uh collins so it just remains for me to say on behalf of the red river archaeology group thank you so much kat for your time and uh best of luck with the the book tour
1: No, thank you so much. An absolute pleasure talking to you.
0: Yeah, um, I think as you've all heard there, Kat is just the the queen of science communication. Um, I know, Luke, you say you're not an archaeologist, but you have worked actually in the field and you've been doing uh, this podcast for a long time now did you know how, how did that come across to you as somebody amazing. who doesn't work on it, a daily basis say in a, in a trench
2: when we stopped recording we kind of were still chatting to cat on this one and i said to her i'm not an archaeologist i'm not a historian you've sold me on this book it sounds incredible and she did i went out and i bought the audiobook i listened to little bits of it coming in on the train um to work every day it's fantastic she's an amazing storyteller if that didn't come across in the podcast, which it obviously
0: did. Oh, yeah. No, I no, mean, it was fantastic. I I I mean, I think you can see me, and with everyone we've had, you can see just me relaxing. Obviously, you start hmm. these, and I've known Kat for years. You're almost a bit like we're recording something for for the public and you're, you know, a bit nervous. But immediately I ask quite long questions. You may you may have noticed, um, d- dear listeners. But Kat just <laughs> absolutely didn't. But- <laughs> An eyelid. Oh, Lucas noticed that. I asked a lot of questions, but just absolutely per- perfect answers, and just such an interesting topic. And and Cat tells it like you're reading a you know a, a, a Nordic noir sort of mm. uh, crime crime novel. It's it's full of uh intrigue and she writes this beautiful she can write these two styles these two voices you've got the hard science because she's a you know proper hard science archaeologist but then also can write almost basically like poetry to sort of in, introduce the, yeah. the the chapters and i think there i mean i say she she's a friend but i, I genuinely uh enjoyed reading this book and it, it, you know it did not feel like work both reading the book and uh, and talking to Kat today
2: and hopefully, it didn't feel like work for you guys listening to it, which I know it didn't. It was a very entertaining podcast. If you enjoyed this, go back through our back catalogue. There's plenty more with some fantastic topics, including interviews with our own Dr. Tom Horn here talking about uh, Vikings. And do you want to give him a little bit of a teaser of your old podcast?
0: Yeah, so I I, I got a book out on Viking trade. So basically, you know, I'm quite superficial. So it was shiny things like silver coins. So if you're interested in shiny silver coins and the Vikings and trades and kingdoms rising and falling based on, you know, how much money they can get into their to their sort of trading ports, then, yeah, l- listen to that one.
2: And there's plenty more of that coming right at you every two weeks here on the shindig podcast so make sure to like make sure to follow make sure to follow us on twitter on facebook on instagram on youtube we have videos coming out all the time so anywhere you can find the red river archaeology group we'll have some amazing media coming your way thank you very much for listening and watching
0: thank you guys